if this is your first time joining with us, uh, once again, welcome. Uh, we've been journeying through a series uh, titled The Road to the Kingdom. Um, and for the past couple of weeks, we've kind of worked our way into the book of Romans. And so this morning, we're going to be in chapter 3. Um, and in a very oversimplistic view of everything we've talked about up to this point in Romans, uh, is that chapter 1, Paul has been making an argument. And we're going to find ourselves straight in the middle of this argument. But in chapter 1, he says, okay, all the non-Jewish people, all the Gentiles, you're unrighteous. Chapter 2, very oversimplistic. Chapter 2, okay, Jews, you too, you're not, out of the, you're not out of the picture. You too are unrighteous. And so here in chapter 3 this morning, he's going to make an airtight case with evidence saying, everyone, all people, all of humanity, what characterizes all of humanity is that we are all unrighteous, that we are all sinful. So this morning, we're going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, in, in Romans, uh, we're going to see this word righteousness, um, and it's this word that's mentioned uh, close to 30 times. And if you take other words that use the same root word in righteousness, um, we're going to see it close to 60 times. So this word righteousness is this word that just dominates this letter to the Roman church. Paul is going to continue to make this argument of the pervasiveness of sin, that it's not going to be hard to find unrighteous people, and it's not going to be hard to find unrighteous actions. It's everywhere. Sin is universal. And I think that's something that we can kind of agree uh, here this morning. Um, you know, whether you're a believer here this morning, um, or you're someone that, you know, isn't persuaded yet of the faith and, you know, you, you don't profess Christianity, um, it's not difficult for us to agree with that statement that there's brokenness in the world today. In fact, uh, we live in a world where many people attempt to not deal with the realities of all the bad in the world, with all the evil in the world, and so what they do is they redefine good. But do these redefinitions actually bring a person to understand and experience what good truly is. I was talking with uh, one of our youth guys, um, and, uh, you know, are you guys familiar with I-9 Sports? Uh, our, our kids are in I-9 Sports, um, and something that I have had to come and realize is that there will never be a championship game at I-9 Sports. <laughs> you know, and in, in many other uh, kids' sports, um, you're going to find the younger they are, the more they don't want to keep score. You know, but what if, you know, where, where in other kids' sports we, we hear like, oh, we don't keep score, we don't keep score, everybody's a winner. What if that philosophy, imagine if that was moved on the older people got all the way to the Olympics. Imagine if at the Olympics they only passed out participation medals. They tell people, oh, no, no, we don't keep score. We don't keep score. Everybody is a winner. Everyone will get the same medal. Probably won't be gold. It's too expensive. And everyone will get a medal, even if they come in last place. They'll get the same medal. Will people still desire to compete? Probably no, right? And why? Why would no one want to compete if they were receiving the same medal? medal as everybody else. 
Because this redefinition of being a winner has no value. Yeah, softening the language of losing or being a loser can be done in the name of love for sure. But what's the cost? What's the cost? Winning has no value. Training has no value. Participating in itself has no value. All the preparation and one's life choices will have no value because no matter what, everybody's a winner. In the same light, if we continue to redefine what is good, what will it cost? There's at least two things. Many people will not understand what evil consists of, and they may never know the true beauty of what is good, what is good news. And this is a principle that doesn't just fall into our time. Uh, This is a timeless principle. In fact, in the early, I'd say late 4th century, early 5th century, um, St. Augustine said this. He said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe in, but yourself. In the text this morning, what Paul's going to do is he's going to explain that man is completely bankrupt of any good. He's saying that inherent goodness does not exist. And man desperately needs the good news of the gospel. The title this morning uh, for our sermon is No One is Righteous, and we will begin um, in verse 9 of chapter 3. Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Verse 9 begins with a question. It begins with two questions. It begins with, what then? Paul has been making this argument um, that the Jewish people have certain advantages, and so he's going to make a a conclusion, uh, kind of a statement here. Um, He's concluding all his arguments from chapter 2. What's his argument? It's that historically, the Jewish people had certain advantages than any other people group. Um, That the Jewish people in salvation history... um, they were spoken to God. God spoke to them in their history. And they've also been trusted the words of God, the very words of God. But just like with any advantages, there's the temptation to feel superior. And so what Paul is saying is that, yeah, there are advantages. But they weren't advantages to them because they misused the law. There's no superiority for this group of people. Why? Because sin is universal. So Paul asks this question, so with these advantages, are we really superior? Are we better off? His answer is no. Not altogether. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And many scholars have commented that this next section that we're about to walk into, um, verses 10 through 20, uh, maybe verse 9 through 20, reflects somewhat of a courtroom scene um, where Paul puts all of humanity 
on trial. So seen with this imagery, verse 9, what is, it, what is this scene? Um, it's the scene where Paul, the lawyer, makes the, the accusation. And what he does is he explains that when it comes to the judgment of God, there will be equality. Everyone will be found guilty. Paul is saying here in this large section this morning is that there is no distinction. All are under the power of sin. Look at the words that Paul uses, that everyone is under sin. This is that imagery that man is enslaved to sin. But what's really interesting is that this is not the way the world views sin. To the world, sin looks like freedom. Sin looks satisfying. Sin sin looks good. And what's worse, sin looks normal. Paul is saying that sin is what plagues the world. Uh, In fact, my mentor, um, he used to say, (laughs) he used to have all these really fun isms, but he had this one saying, he says, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It's going to keep you longer than you want to stay. And it's going to cost you more than you want to pay. It's fun because it rhymed. (laughs) The word under that Paul uses is referring to man's enslavement to this cruel and oppressive slave master, sin. Paul's going to later unpack this understanding of slavery to sin in chapter 6. But here, what he's going to do is he's going to do something that's very Paul. In verses 10 through 18, um, he does something that's very customary for Jewish teachers, Jewish rabbis. Uh, that when they lectured, when they taught, they would do this one thing. And it's this word called shiraz, um, which literally means the string together of pearls. So Paul, what he's going to do in verses 10 through 18 is he's going to string together these passages from Jewish scripture. He's going to string together some of the Psalms. He's going to string together some of the Proverbs um, and one passage in Isaiah. What does he do this for? He's going to make a conclusive statement. Again, this airtight case, evidence against all of humanity. Because of this evidence, one could possibly conclude that this is an open and shut case. Paul the lawyer, going at it. And if you're keeping count, Paul's going to bring out 14 charges against humanity. You know, but what if they object? You know, saying like, yeah, Paul, we see that, but you're taking those verses out of context. Straw man argument, Paul. You know, or these texts are only referring to those corrupt Gentiles, those people, not God's people. Paul's like, nope, nope. Paul, a highly trained Pharisee, knew what he was doing. He quotes directly from their Jewish scriptures, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, um, the law. He quotes from the law to talk about the sinfulness of the people of the law. These passages that he uses, if carefully studied, are passages where the Jews are primarily involved or in view. And this section can be broken up into three sections. Um, verses 10 through 12 the sinful character of humanity, 
verses 13 through 14, the sinful communication of humanity, and verses 15 through 17, the sinful conduct of humanity. In verse 10, Paul continues, and he says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. In this first section, Paul quotes from Psalm 14, uh, verses 1 through 3, and uh, also it's repeated in Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, to describe man's sinful character. He communicates kind of this principle of the foolishness of man. Um, and I know in uh, Matt's Sunday school class, you guys have been going through Proverbs, um, and it always comes back to the statement about the fool and the person of wisdom. That the fool believes that he has limitless power, limitless control compared to God. And again, Paul uses this term righteousness. And it's not just referring to one who stands rightly before God, but one who is able to live rightly before God. He's talking not just about the actions, but he's talking about the being. So when he says, none is righteous, he's stating that no one stands right with God. No one lives an upright life. No one chooses to understand their need for God because no one naturally seeks for God. In fact, he states that they deliberately and intentionally turn away from God out of their own self-interest. In Luke 18, there's this narrative of Jesus and this young man. Um, in Luke 18, this young man uh, seemed to have it all. Uh, he had wealth. Um, he had youth. He even had a desire, a seeming desire to be moral and ethical. So uh, in a conversation with Jesus, he asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember how Jesus responds to that? He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus does something very crucial that we need to understand this morning. Jesus confronts him in his perceived goodness. A wise pastor once said, we need to repent not only of our lack of goodness, but we also need to repent of our perceived goodness. You know, church, uh, there's an application for us even here this morning. Um, you know, we, we are never above saying sorry to one another. We're going to hurt each other at some point because we're a church, we're, we're a family, we're full of broken people, sinful people. Um, and many a time, uh, we have wronged a brother or sister, perceiving our own goodness, that we are right, they are wrong. But just a quick challenge for us here this morning, let us become a church 
where repentance and reconciliation becomes a natural impulse for us. Through God's grace, through his love that he has shown us, that we can confront the problems of sin together in love. In fact, I love Mark's account of this narrative because he includes a statement that is not in the Luke narrative. He states that Jesus was looking at him, this rich young ruler, he was looking at him, and the text says he loved him and told him this. Jesus loved this man enough to confront him in his sin and tell him the truth. He says, this truth, he says, no one is good except God alone. Christian, do you confront the lost with love? Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you wrongfully perceive personal goodness in yourself apart from Christ to the point where you're above telling the truth of the gospel to the very people that God has placed in your life that are spiritually dead. Church, are we loving people to holiness? Something that we've been saying as our anthem for the past several weeks, are you loving people to holiness? And as I mentioned earlier, um, that Sunday school class, Matt's Sunday school class, they've been studying through the book of Proverbs. There's a central theme in the book of Proverbs where he always, the, the writer always comes back to the same point, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The word that David uses here in this psalm that's being quoted, worthless, um, it's used uh, in the Septuagint's translation, um, and this word is really special because it means the souring of milk. That's what he means by worthless. Like, what a shame. It had purpose. It was meant to be enjoyed. But now it has gone bad. The unrighteous man, the fool, chooses to render his life as spiritually worthless. <laughs> you know, it's the unrighteous man that sings Sinatra's I did it my way. It's this concept that Jesus teaches when he says, apart from me, you can bear no fruit. And if it isn't clear enough in Paul's argument, he concludes with another final blow saying, no, no one does good. Not even one. Verse 13 continues, Paul writes and quotes, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Here in the second section, Paul quotes from Psalm 5.9, um, also from Psalm 10.7. In order to describe the unrighteous man's, the sinful man's communication. Look at how Paul cites passages that focus on the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth. You know, there, there are over close to 90 proverbs regarding the fool's tongue and the fool's speech. One New Testament scholar says that the ungodly display their fallen nature when they open their mouths to speak. 
Paul explains that their mouths, unrighteous men, humanity, they're full of infection. They're full of corruption. Look at the imagery that Paul uses here. An open grave in verse 13. What does he mean by that? You know, um, not only do we cover up graves out of respect, um, but uh, there's also other reasons why we cover up graves. Uh, We cover them uh, because of physical corruption. Um, You know, we cover them up because of the smell. Um, And also there's this picture of death and that's why we cover up graves. And so Paul explains that when the unrighteous open their mouths, it testifies at like an open grave to their spiritual death. Verse 15 continues, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This third section um, in the Shiraz, uh, this string of pearls, Paul quotes from Isaiah 59, uh, verses 7 and 8, and Psalm 36, verse 1, in order to describe the unrighteous man, all of humanity's sinful conduct. Some scholars believe when they look at this list of all these verses um, that maybe Paul had an intentional order to these quotations that he put it in a certain way to communicate something. And if this is true, it would be logical to assume that Paul was starting off with sin that wasn't very visible, that he was starting off with sin that was very internal. And then he moves to the visible, the external sins, that he's communicating this natural crescendo of sin, From the hidden sin that Matt talked about last week in Romans 2 to sin that's marked by a life of ruin and misery, an eagerness to shed blood, and a life where the way of peace is unknown to them. How did it get this far? Verse verse 18 explains that it is because there is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, how horrid, how terrible these descriptions are, and yet they speak directly of all of humanity. There is no distinction. All are under the power of sin. Paul continues in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know, the Jews who heard this would have already been aware that the law only applied to those under the law. But apparently, they didn't realize something. Apparently, they didn't realize that this placed them in a defensiveless position, a powerless position, that the law itself silenced every mouth that attempted to make a case for their own personal righteousness. Look at the end of verse 19. He says, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is describing the scope of God's authority. 
His sovereign rule is over the whole world. And because he is a just judge, everyone in the whole world will be held accountable to him. This right here would have been a hard pill for the Jews to swallow. Not one human being can earn a right standing before God based on their merit, based on their accolades, based on their performance, and why not? Why can we not earn a right standing? Because the law was never meant to make God's people just before God. The law was always about guiding God's people back to their sinfulness, their unworthiness, their need for God's mercy, their need for God. One New Testament scholar says this, he says, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. Paul's explaining that all of humanity will be judged for their unrighteousness and are without excuse. You know, I love hymns, um, and there's this hymn in the late 18th century that proclaims this truth. It says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow, be for sin, could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Paul continues in verse 21, and he writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law Although the, uh, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've recently been having a lot of eye problems this past week, um, which has forced me to squint uh, to the point where um, my family, <laughs> it's great, uh, like my kids will see me squinting and they'll be like, like copying me, right? Um, and why do I squint? Uh, simply because simple things like reading a text message, it's terrible. Reading a text message, trying to find the honey in our kitchen, um, you know, even identifying our kids on the soccer field as they're playing their game, they prove to be a great challenge. So in attempts to see clearly or to locate the honey, the object, um, I need to squint uh, to bring things into focus, to see with greater clarity. So in the text this morning, Paul, he has made it abundantly clear that sin is everywhere. You don't have to go out of your way to find unrighteous behavior. You don't have to go out of your way to find unrighteous people. You don't have to squint to see the problems, to see the corruption in our world, to see the brokenness that we live in, and why. What is Paul's argument this whole time is that sin, sin is universal. Sin is what characterizes all of humanity. And if you missed it, he says it again in verse 22 through 23. For there is no distinction. If I haven't been clear enough, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But before he addresses this again, Paul does something very crucial. And if you miss this point, you've missed the point of the entire sermon today. If you miss this point, you missed the entire point of the series that we've been going through. And you've missed the point of being here today. 
In verse 21, the first, for the very first time in this letter to the Romans, Paul introduces them to hope. You know, Matt commented uh, when we're talking about this uh, on Wednesdays, um, he commented that this right here, verse 21, this is the light at the very end of a dark tunnel. Verse 21 begins with, but now. This is signifying a crucial shift in Paul's argument. It's this historical shift in salvation history. Paul explains God's righteousness, the thing we lack, God's righteousness has been manifested. It's been actualized. It's been revealed in history. In fact, the law and the prophets bear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ, God's righteousness revealed, the long-awaited Messiah that you guys have been waiting for to deliver God's people, it was always, always God's plan. Leon Morris a comment, uh, makes a comment, and he says, Paul is making the point that the gospel is not God's afterthought. God has always planned to save people by the way of grace. It is making that known that is recent for them. And who has access? Who has access to this gift of God's grace? Look at verse 22. This gift of God's grace is for who? For all who believe. It is because there is no distinction with the universality of sin that there's also a universal need for God's righteousness, God's revealed gift of grace, Jesus Christ. Verse 24 continues, believers are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be, the ju- he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, wh- what does it mean? There's a, there's a ton of very weighty words here in this one section alone. What does it mean that believers are justified by his grace as a gift? You know, there's, there's a very, very long answer to this question. There have been books, um, volumes written on this one word alone um, to answer this question. Uh, so out of that, as a side, as a small plug, I want to invite you to come over to our Wednesday night pre-sermon Bible studies uh, where this past Wednesday we got to unpack a lot of these heavy, weighty terms um, like justification, propitiation. But in short, to answer that question, what is this justification? What's taking place? When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, in other words, when we have complete reliance on his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross that paid for sin and his resurrection to new life, what are we doing? We, we receive Christ himself as a gift of God's grace. So what does it mean that it's a gift? What does gift mean? 
it means that when we go back to that picture of that law court scene, that we are actually found guilty, right? Paul's made this argument, this airtight case against all of humanity, that humanity is unrighteous. We are found guilty and subject to eternal death. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that Christ pays in full the just punishment that we deserve. Christ, who is sinless, dies perfectly, satisfying the wrath of God in our place. And three days later, Christ resurrects from the dead, conquering death, accrediting to us His righteous credentials, giving us eternal life, giving us His right standing with God, so that when we are brought before God, the just judge, we are judged by Christ's righteousness. Christ is therefore declaring us not guilty and giving us, transforming us into the image of himself. Paul's explaining that God has revealed his righteousness through Jesus Christ as a gift. Get this. It is done freely, meaning that it is only received just as one receives a gift. Who doesn't love free stuff? It's also important to note that God doesn't just give us a second chance. That would be bad news. Why? Because we are unrighteous people. You know, we have a natural propensity to sin. So if we get a second chance, we're going to need a third chance. We're going to need a fourth chance. And the list goes on and on and on and on. God doesn't just give us a second chance. Instead, God gives believers his righteousness through Christ for all who believe. This is not a supplement to add to their merit their good works, their morals, their good intentions. This is a free gift that comes through God's grace and restores man's relationship in right standing with God. So our final point uh, this morning is that all have access to God's gracious gift through faith, though not all will desire it. You know, Paul ends this next section, uh, this final section, with a wave of rhetorical questions. You know, when Paul does this uh, in his other letters, um, and for the rest of Romans, and other letters like the book of Galatians, you know, it's quite possible um, that these are real questions, um, that these are real objections that he witnessed uh, in his 20 uh, years of ministry at this point um, in the synagogues, that these are real questions. Objections that people have like, Paul, you can't be saying this. You're a Pharisee like us. You're a Jew like us. You can't be saying those things. So Paul continues. And he writes, Then what becomes of our boasting? It excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? He's not the, is he not the God of Gentiles also? 
yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You know, Paul's case for justification and salvation by faith alone, it leaves no room for boasting. He explains that our boasting is excluded by the law of faith because one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And the early reformers, uh, like Martin Luther, um, he made it very clear that our faith is what saves us. It's not human merit. It's not good intention. It's not trying to earn as much as we can that is good to outweigh the bad in life. No. It's only through faith in Christ, the gift of God's grace, the gift of God's righteousness, that we will be made right before God. You know, what's interesting too, um, I have a lot of friends uh, in some other faith systems, um, even in some other churches where uh, some, I found, may attempt to take partial credit in their salvation narrative. You'll hear statements um, like, one day I decided to pray, and I allowed God to come into my heart. I decided to give up my career, my future, my dreams for God. I did God a service. I sacrificed this and this and this for the sake of my salvation. You know, it's Philip Melanchthon and John Edwards that famously wrote, (laughs) you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. C.S. Lewis quotes on a similar topic um, in his book, Surprised by Joy, his spiritual autobiography, and he wrote that man's search for God is like the mouse's search for the cat. The good news of the gospel is that God is the one. God is the one that takes credit He takes the initiative to reconcile us through Christ. Paul is saying that since righteousness is obtained only through faith in Christ, all self-boasting is ruled out. Paul opposed any form of synergism that believed that it is faith in Christ plus something. It's only through Christ Look at verse 30. Paul uses this phrase, God is one. And this, when he uses the phrase, God is one, this would have caught the attention. This would have been the eyebrow raise for the Jews because Paul was employing one of the most foundational, well-worn texts of the law, and it's the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. What does Deuteronomy 6.4 say? It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul's quoting from this. Paul explains that since God is one, the Jews and the Gentiles will not be saved through the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. 
circumcision, but all of humanity will be saved. How? Through faith alone. And it's not just for the Jews, it's for everybody. What's strange, too, is that Paul's conclusion here um, is difficult to interpret. Um, It would have been logical for Paul to end in verse 31 that the law is now abolished um, because Christ has now been revealed. But no, Paul explains that we uphold the law. What does he mean here? You know, Paul was well aware that Jesus himself proclaimed that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. Paul is saying the law is not nullified because it doesn't contradict faith in Christ. You know, there there are many interpretations of this final verse that seem to imply that any dabbling with the law, especially for the Jews, would tempt them, would tempt their desire to become self-righteous. So Paul here is urging them to not shirk away from the law, but to uphold the law recognizing that any good that comes from law-keeping comes from God. So, believer, as we kind of slowly close our time here, believers here gathered online or in person, my challenge to you this morning is to lay deep foundations of faith here in this passage. Remind yourself daily, daily of your need to magnify Christ, but not just magnify Christ. Magnify your great need for Him because we're here. As Thomas Manton once wrote, you can never magnify Christ enough. And you can never debase self enough. Christ is most exalted. When we remind ourselves that we are bankrupt without him, he is most honored and most glorified. So, seasoned saints, young believers here this morning, never grow tired of the beauty of the gospel. Never grow weary of proclaiming it. You know, maybe you're a Christian. You've already placed your faith in Christ, but you've been falling back into sin, into old habits that don't bring God glory. That when we read through verses 9 through 18, that it stinged a little because you're right there. Maybe you feel like what Paul's explaining here, that you're feeling like you're under sin's oppression, under sin's enslavement. I want to remind you that if you already placed your faith in Christ, you already have been justified by Christ through your faith. That through God's mercy, you have been bought with the blood of Christ. So I want to challenge you guys. Repent from those sins believe in Christ's transforming work. Take hold of your faith that you confessed and take full delight in him this morning. I want to challenge believers, if you are falling back, come to the church. And it's not just the building. 
The church is the people of God. The church is all about the people. If you're falling and struggling in sin, we have brothers and sisters here that are also falling back into sin to encourage you to pray for one another. If you're looking for a place to find community, I know a place. Don't struggle by yourself. Don't try to hold these burdens on your own. You can't do it. Come back to the church family. Let's take up each other's burdens. Let's confront each other in sin and tell them the truth of the gospel message. For those of you uh, who are here this morning or listening online and you, you, you don't know Christ, for those of you that have not accepted this free gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you with the words of Isaiah when he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. I want to challenge you. If you're not a believer this morning, receive Christ. Receive this gift. He will have you. If you don't know Christ, turn to him. It's only in Christ, it's only in Christ that you will find rest, that you will find peace, and that you will find a family of brothers and sisters eagerly waiting to walk alongside you in this road to the kingdom.